Happy Palm Sunday. Is, we are so glad to see all of you here today. Now, as we are continuing in our worship service, we will now be transitioning into a time where we hear the reading of God's word. And to read God's word for us today is Maria. Today's reading is from Mark 11, verses 1 through 20. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colts? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Maria. CNE, the Canadian National Exhibit, or most of us know it as the X. We have that phrase, hey, let's go to the X. Um, there used to be a time when we saw it all the time on TV, but we don't have TVs anymore. We don't really watch that. It's on the internet, maybe on YouTube when the time comes around. People say, let's go to the X. And it's, for us, Canada's largest annual exhibition. For many, going to the X is an annual thing that's done at the end of the summertime. It's a fair that's filled with carnival games, Lots of food, expensive food, and lots and lots of shows that go on. 
Last year, it was recorded that over 1.5 million people attended the X. Now imagine, imagine this. You're in line waiting to enter into the X. And if you've ever been in line waiting for the X, you know how crazy of a line that is. It's long, it's, it can be hot, and you can sometimes be a little impatient. And now as you're waiting, you see a row of black Cadillac SUVs just roll up right to the entrance, cutting everybody in line. Not just anyone can drive up in this kind of manner. You have to have some kind of special pass. You have to be some kind of VIP person to have this kind of access. And thousands of people trying to enter are forced to wait and watch the scene unfold. For only a celebrity or someone of high status can make such a grand entrance. Well, this is how Jesus enters into Jerusalem. It's Passover. It's the biggest annual gathering for the Jewish people. Large numbers of pilgrims journey from across the country for this festival. And it was expected, even for those who were physically able to, to walk as you got closer to Jerusalem, get off your horse or your donkey and start walking, and you walk into the city. So choosing to ride into the city definitely grabs a lot of people's attention. Now the next series of events in our narrative today, it becomes opportunities for the people who were there back in the day and for those of us listening today to encounter the very person and work of Jesus Christ through his entrance on a cult, his statement that he makes to the fig tree, and his action in the temple. Specifically, there are three points that we will see in our encounter with Jesus. First, he is the king who saves. Second, he is the prophet who speaks. And third, he is the priest who gives. So firstly, the king who saves. For the first time in the book of Mark, Jesus doesn't keep a low profile as he's entering into Jerusalem. In fact, he is the one who initiates his own grand triumphal procession. He does this, as we read, by sending two of his disciples to go into the village to retrieve a colt that is tied. Now, there was rich, rich messianic imagery in this, and it comes from Zechariah 9.9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The significance of an unridden colt was that it was usually set apart solely for the king to ride on and nobody else. And on top of that, as we, as we saw this morning, you know, with the leafy branches, the palm branches, and also cloaks were being spread on the road, this happens one time in the Bible in 2 Kings 9, where it marks the people taking off their cloaks and spreading them on the floor like a red carpet for King Jehu to enter in his royal procession. So this is how Jesus is now entering into Jerusalem. The stage is set. Now the crowd that's following Jesus, 
This, we have to know, is the same crowd that was following Jesus since his ministry days in Galilee. Up until now, they've seen and heard a lot of his teachings and witnessed his miracles. He's healed the sick, the demon-possessed. He's raised even the dead back to life. He's fed 5,000 with just five loaves and two fish. And the most recent miracle they've witnessed was blind Bartimaeus, a blind man on the road receiving sight. And it's interesting because this blind man in the previous verses right before our passage rightfully recognizes Jesus and calls him the son of David. The son of David. That, that was a title that would have stirred up hope. Hope in the hearts of the Jewish crowd because it was a reference to the promised Messiah whom God would raise up from David's line to come and establish his throne once and forever. And so as the crowd is getting ready to enter into the city of David, their hearts are brimming with expectation and hope that their Messiah, their king, has finally arrived. Hope. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. That's from one of the poems written by Emily Dickinson. Don't we all hope in something? Don't we wish for something? If I only had blank, then my life would be complete. What is that thing for you? Why is it so important to you? Is it to start a family? Is it for deep relationships? Is it for financial security? Is it for job stability? Is it for improvement in health? These are all good things that you may strive and hope for. But the moment it becomes the ultimate thing is the moment that it takes full reign of the throne of your heart. And the question we must all ask ourselves is this. Is that thing worthy enough to sit there? Who or what is sitting on the throne of your heart today? For these Galilean pilgrims, they also hoped for things that were good. They were under the oppressive Roman rule, meaning they were being heavily taxed. And some of us may know what that feels like in this tax season. April's the deadline. where We're really heavily taxed and we're just trying to get that stuff in. But it is not the best feeling. But these people, these Jewish people, whatever experiences we're going through, it was on a different level of oppression for them. They always had to look over their shoulders in fear of breaking a rule and upsetting a Roman official. And so they hoped for a king. They hoped for a Messiah who would one day come to take back what's rightfully theirs, to crush their enemies and to lead them to freedom. But this hope for something good became the ultimate thing that determined for them what kind of king should enter through those gates at Jerusalem. For the, for the Jewish people, 
their Messiah was going to be a conquering king. So when these pilgrims were shouting from the top of their lungs, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, there's a particular emphasis on the arrival of a royal and a victorious king. It's nuanced with a nationalistic, a political tone. As they shout, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. To them, Jesus was to be the king who finally restores Israel's national sovereignty. Their ultimate hope for salvation, it was centered on themselves. It wasn't on the mission of God. They didn't know that the scope of his kingship was far greater than the Israelite nation alone. Jesus had come to do something that would have universal and eternal implications for all nations, tribes, and tongues. But look what's interesting here. Notice that Jesus doesn't stop their praising. He doesn't stop them. He doesn't say, stop, stop, stop. You have to keep, this, keep it on a download, keep it quiet, keep it secret. No, he doesn't stop them. Because they're still technically correct in proclaiming that he is the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord, who is coming to usher the kingdom of David, that he alone is the one who can save them. By fulfilling such prophecies from the Old Testament, riding on a colt, and with uh, riding on a path that's laid out with branches and cloaks, he is not keeping the crowds silent anymore. In fact, he is making an outright declaration to the entire city of Jerusalem. He's putting it on full blast for everyone to see and hear that the long-awaited Messiah, God's anointed king from the line of David, has finally arrived. Here is the king, and this is Jesus. Jesus is the true king who reigns and rules over the entirety of the cosmos, as described in the book of John, uh, as described in the book of Revelation by John, who says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and the armies of heaven were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the King before whom every knee in heaven and on earth will bow. Yet in our narrative, he is found entering into Jerusalem, not on a great white steed that's bred for battle, but on a peaceful cult that has never been written before. He doesn't have an entire host of angels armed with weapons ready to go to war riding behind him, but he has civilian pilgrims shouting, Hosanna, save us, we pray. Jesus here is redefining the popular Jewish understanding of what the Messiah's role was to be. He is the long-awaited king who has come to save his people. But it is a salvation that reaches past the nation of Israel alone. It is a salvation that is universal in scope. 
to both the Jews and the Gentiles, to those who are near and to those who are far. Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, that even the Son of Man came not to be served as a king would be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, to seek and to save the lost. He is the Messiah who's come to rescue his people from the kingdom of darkness and to bring them into the kingdom of light. Jesus is not the kind of conquering king that any of those people in Jerusalem would have expected. But he is the only king capable of saving his people from the chains of sin and death as he would willingly be bound and led up that Calvary hill to be killed as a sinner. He is the humble king who gives up his life as a ransom for many and empties himself to the point of obedience of death on a cross for your sins and mine. He is the true king who is the ultimate hope worthy of salvation. He is the final king who rules and defends us from all of our enemies. And he is the worthy king who is to sit on the throne of your heart today. So submit yourselves to him and serve him. Jesus, the king who saves. Secondly, the prophet who speaks Right after Jesus enters Jerusalem, he goes directly to the temple. It's strange. It almost seems like it's a, it's a little sentence, a verse that's just added in to the flow of events, flow of events and it kind of cuts it into two separate parts, but it adds context to the flow of our narrative because this becomes an opportunity for Jesus to take a look at everything that's been going on inside the temple walls. And when he does, he sees all the market activities that takes up most of the space in the outer court. What would have been a place for Gentiles to discover and meet with God in quiet prayer and worship had been turned into a marketplace of stalls and booths. So after looking around thoroughly at everything, at the state of the temple, Jesus then leaves. And the next morning, we're presented with a very strange, strange scene. He sees a fig tree in distance, and it is recorded that this fig tree was in leaf. Now, it's normal for fig leaves to appear around the time of Passover, which was around April, as this, as this was a season for, as the season for fruits would come later on in the months of May or June. And Mark actually mentions this as a note, saying it wasn't the time, it wasn't the season for fruit, for figs. So then why does Jesus get upset and curse this fig tree right there and then? Well, the fig tree has symbolic value. All throughout the Old Testament, Fig trees were used to represent the people of God. And the fruit was used to represent their love and their obedience to God. Jeremiah 8 says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. So in this demonstration with the fig tree, the Jews 
who are familiar with the Old Testament would have seen an immediate connection between the lack of fruit and the failure of God's people in their obedience and love. In fact, this is a prophetic moment as Jesus speaks against the the current cultural climate of the Jews in Jerusalem. He's saying that their faith is barren and fruitless, for they have been unfaithful to God, and this is reflected in the current state of the temple that has been desecrated with livestock and money changers. And by calling them out, Jesus is demonstrating boldness despite the probable backlash from the Jewish leaders and the teachers who had approved of all these things to take place within the temple walls. By speaking out, Jesus encounters us as the true and final prophet. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, God promises Moses that one day I will raise up a prophet like you. I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I command him. Jesus is that prophet whom God had planned and set aside to send to his people to tell them about his will regarding judgment, excuse me, judgment and salvation. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself is the incarnate word of God who became flesh and came to dwell among us. He is the word of truth that speaks out against the religious cultural climate of Jerusalem. Consider now the cultural climate of our city here in Toronto. What is acceptable and what isn't? Even a few years ago, it seemed like there was still some room for people to agree to disagree over certain values or beliefs. But now we are living in an extremely hostile culture, a cancel culture where there is great fear and anxieties in the words we may say or the way that we may position ourselves. You have to be very careful to be accommodating and politically correct. Because if you aren't, or if you accidentally slip up, you run the risk of being labeled and blasted all over social media as a disgrace, as an embarrassment to society. This will end your career, your social life, and it can seem like death itself. Do you ever find yourself anxious or afraid that you might get canceled or persecuted? Is it in your workplace? Is it becoming harder to draw the line between your faith and the cultural expectation of conformity and accommodation? Are you scared of the consequences of being the only one that might stick out if you don't participate? Is it in your close relationships? Do you feel like you'll be rejected the moment you say or do something that seems controversial or against the grain? Do you feel pressure to agree with everything everybody says 
because you don't want to be singled out. If any of those things resonate with you, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. There was no Jew in Jerusalem who would dare question or oppose the religious leaders or teachers at the time in the way they determined what was proper in their worship of God. Because if anyone challenged them, they risked being canceled and shut down immediately as a blasphemer. And the penalty would have been death for blaspheming the name of God. Yet Jesus prophetically speaks He speaks out against the religious cultural climate. He condemns the nation of Israel for their hollow religiosity. He says it as it is. They become full of lip service and their heart full of self-righteousness and pride. And Jesus fully knew that the consequence of speaking the word of God which ran counter-cultural to the popular belief in Jerusalem would result in death. Yet he proclaims his prophetic message of eschatological judgment against the nation of Israel for what would eventually be their rejection of him. He takes on the ultimate consequence of death in order to offer the ultimate gift of life. As the word of God He alone speaks life to all who hear and receive him. In John 6, when Jesus asks his disciples if they also wanted to leave him along with the majority of the crowds because his teaching was really difficult, Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Jesus is the true and final prophet who bore the weight of the culture's hate and rejection which would lead to his death in order to take our sins so that we can receive forgiveness and life, so that we can stand firm, so that we can stand secure in the Father's perfect love. For in this love, neither death nor life nor any powers in this present day culture can possibly separate us from his unconditional love. To those who reject his words, they will be judged as the fig tree withers away. But to those who hear and believe his words, they will receive eternal life. Jesus is the prophet who speaks. So listen to his words of life. Encounter his grace and experience his love. And thirdly, the priest who gives. Let's take a look at now the current state of the Jerusalem temple more closely. In the outer court, people are buying and selling livestock in booths and stalls. It's loud. It's busy. It's no place. It's no place for people to be praying or worshiping the holy God. So what does Jesus do? He goes in there. He just overturns and flips tables. 
the tables of these money changers and merchants, and he drives them out of the temple space. At first glance, it almost seems spontaneous. seems impulsive. It almost looks like Jesus is having some anger management issues here. He's throwing a violent fit. You wonder, this is very unlike you, Jesus. I've been tracking with you through the book of Mark. Who are you right now? But you know, that's actually not the case. Because remember, that odd verse, right after his grand entry, he visits the temple the previous night and he takes a look around. He takes a look around at the deplorable state that this temple was in. So then, this, this action in the temple is a deliberate and planned demonstration against the religious leaders who had misguided the Jewish people away from worshiping the living God in spirit and in truth. R.T. France, he's a New Testament scholar, remarks that Jesus, at this point in the narrative, he is throwing down the gauntlet and he is challenging the Jews in Jerusalem for their empty spirituality. Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. This is pointing to a day when the foreigners and the Gentiles will be able to enjoy the full rights of approaching and worshiping the same God in his holy temple. And the outer court, which was also known as the court of the Gentiles, was supposed to help represent that reality. For it was as far as the Gentiles were allowed to go to observe and for them to worship the living God in the temple. But now this space, the sacred space to meet with the living God has been defiled and occupied by merchants and animals. It has become a space of business, not a temple for worship. His father's house had been desecrated into a den of robbers. So at this point, all eyes are on Jesus. The crowd is astonished and amazed at his teaching. The religious authorities are infuriated and they are looking for ways to kill him. And in this final scene of our narrative, Jesus encounters us as a true and final priest for the people of God. For in the Old Testament, it was the high priest's responsibility to guard, to cleanse the temple. It was also his responsibility to make intercession on behalf of the people of God. That would happen once a year on the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would offer sacrifices of bulls and goats for his own and for the people's sins. For it was only by blood that atonement could be made for the life of another. But unlike other high priests, Jesus offers not the blood of animals to make atonement, but he offers his own blood. Why? Because you and I have defiled and desecrated the temple of God. We are no different from the Jewish worshipers of Jesus' time. You might wonder how or when did this happen? Well, it was in the very first temple in the Garden of Eden where the presence of God dwelled with Adam and Eve. 
It was there that they sinned and rejected the giver of life by choosing their own self-centered ways that led to death and destruction. And we, all of us who are now their descendants, continue to sin and desecrate our way of living, our way of life in the presence of God. We experience this in the brokenness of our relationships, in our health, in the brokenness in the finances, in our selfish ways that may end up hurting others. We see this in the evil that is rampant in our world today. And because of this, we are all, all desperately in need of a savior to purify us, to cleanse us from our sins and to restore us back to fellowship with God who is the source of life and love. And this savior is Jesus, the great high priest who gives his own life to rescue and save us from the ways of sin and death, to restore us back into communion with God. He would go to such extremes to wash and cleanse unworthy and unlovable people like you and I. Why would he do that for us? It is for one simple yet profound reason. Because of love. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. In his eyes, you are worth saving. That he would leave the riches of his heavenly throne to condescend into our brokenness, our desecrated world, to live that selfless and obedient life that you can never live, and to die a death under God's eternal wrath, a death that you could not bear. 1 Peter 1 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Isaiah 53 says, His hands were pierced for our transgressions. His body was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Jesus is the great high priest who gives his life as the ultimate sacrifice to atone for your sins and mine. And here is the greatest part of it all. By his blood, he has made a new and living way into the true temple. Revelations 21 says that this temple is not a physical building but it is the actual presence of the Lord God himself made possible by the spirit of Jesus who dwells in us and is with us until all of eternity. And this is the spirit who bears witness that we are God's children who can freely run into the presence of our heavenly father who has his arms wide open open to receive his own precious daughters and sons. And so if you are someone 
who is curious or seeking today? There's a question that Alpha begins with. What is the purpose of life? Why are we here? Is there greater, greater meaning? And I say yes, there is greater meaning in this life. And that is to return to this true temple, the presence of our living God, and to be restored into fellowship with him, to worship and to enjoy him forever. And that new and living way has been made possible by our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who has given up his life for yours. So look to him and believe in him as your Lord and Savior and receive eternal life. And if you are a believer in this upcoming week, this holy week, be reminded of our king who saves us by humbling himself to the point of death on a cross. He alone is worthy to sit at the throne of your heart. Be encouraged by our prophet who speaks truth and life into our present cultural climate. So hear his words of life and find great courage and security in him. And be enamored by our great high priest who gave his life for yours. So would you consider making time in your schedules to sit under his mercy, his grace, and his love? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our king who has come to save us from the greatest problem of sin and death. As you died on that cross as our humble king and you rose again on the third day. And in that, there is great hope and assurance. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you are our great and our true and final prophet who speaks the words of life, even in our present day and age, in our culture, that is full of fear and anxiety over being politically correct. Lord Jesus, help us to find security. Security in your words of love and life. And lastly, Jesus, we thank you that you are our priest who has laid down, who has given up your life for ours to bring us into the presence of God. Help us for those who do not know you, to come to know you as our Lord and Savior. And for those who do know you, to sit under that truth in your mercy and your grace and your love. Of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think we have some time for uh, some Q&A questions. Yeah. We have time for uh, about one question. So we'll start with this one. Uh, this question writes, how do we know if we are Jesus or the religious leaders in this story? Isn't there a danger to assuming that we are Jesus and therefore that the world is improperly hostile towards us instead of considering whether we are in fact the religious elite who have imposed stringent rules on our culture that are contrary to Jesus' true message? Would you like me to repeat that or? I think I got the gist of it. Okay. That was a long question. <laughs> are we Jesus or are we the religious leaders? Yeah, how do we this? associate? With how do we associate that? And I'm assuming during the... Uh, uh, Jesus is our prophet point. Uh, that's what I'm assuming. 
We are not Jesus in the story. There is only one Jesus, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, although we are not Jesus, we are called to be his followers. Jesus calls us to pick up our cross and follow him. And so, for those of us who are believers, uh, we are called to follow after the way that Jesus stood for the message of the truth, uh, which is the message of the gospel. And however way that message of the gospel plays out in your current context of work or in your personal life, that is uh, something that requires prayer, a lot of prayer, a lot of discernment, um, perhaps counsel from other fellow believers as well, uh, to be able to navigate what that looks like, um, to be able to stand for the gospel in the cultural climate that you find yourself in. Uh, but back to the question, we are not Jesus. Uh, we are followers of Jesus, and we are called to follow after the way that he has lived. Uh, and um, yeah, represented uh, what uh, being a believer looks like. So yeah. That would Excellent. be my answer. Excellent. Um, if you have any further questions, you are more than welcome to email Stephen. His information here is found online, or, sorry, on the screens before you. So feel free to email Stephen at stephen at gracetoronto.ca. Uh, at this time, we're going to invite the music team to come on up, and we're going to sing our song of reflection. Um, I see one person here. Where are the rest? They're okay. So um, if you're able to stand with us uh, here, we will sing our song of reflection together.